welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with Helen Matfield and Murray Hunt. Now, I'm going to start with a confession. It's about an addiction, but it's one I suspect is shared by many of you. And this is it. This it is. I'm addicted to the US election, and it's a serious addiction. For the past few months, the first thing I do in the morning is check the latest polling averages on 538, and no day can go by without far too much time spent checking an array of political commentaries and polling data from crunch point counties across the US. Perhaps like all junkies, I can though rationalise my addiction. It's because it matters, and perhaps matters more than ever before. The future of climate change action, the international legal order, the promotion of human rights, press freedom, and indeed the future of truth and decency in public discourse, all of these are on the ballot, and they impact not just the citizens of 50 states, but all of us. Today, though, we're going to avoid the temptation of focusing on the campaigns itself, but rather look at the implications of the election for the rule of law in the United States, and in particular, trying to make sense of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the imminent appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to fill her place. This would be a controversial appointment at any time, but has been made more so not simply because of the timing of a rush nomination process so close to the election, but because of the potential impact of the appointment on the outcome of the election itself. So what are the potential implications of her appointment for the election? And what, how do we examine it in the context of other judicial appointments over the Trump term? And what are the implications, more profoundly, for the long-term legitimacy, not only of the Supreme Court of the United States, but for the rule of law in the United States itself? There's no better person to discuss these issues with than David Cole, who we're delighted is with us once again. David is the National Legal Director of the ACLU and the George Mitchell Professor of Law and Public Policy at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of several celebrated books and a a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. David, you uh, appeared in many cases before the US Supreme Court and you've written about uh, the court itself. I wonder if I could start just by asking you for your own personal reflections of Justice Ginsburg. Well, she was an incredible human being and an incredible figure in our history. I mean, second only to Thurgood Marshall, who uh, was a Supreme Court justice and before a Supreme Court justice was the lawyer who uh, was the architect of uh, the legal campaign to end segregation uh, in the United States. Um, R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, uh, did more to advance equality than anyone other than Thurgood Marshall. Um, and she did it before she was on the court. Uh, she did it uh, when she was the uh, director of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and she pioneered a series of cases brought before the court in the 1970s that convinced the Supreme Court that discriminating against women violates equal protection. Uh, and you might think from this perspective that, well, that shouldn't be that hard to convince, but this was a court that had upheld rules that excluded women from the legal profession on the ground that they were too sensitive to uh, you know, engage in this adversarial enterprise, uh, excluded women from bartending unless their father owned the bar, because again, they were too uh, sensitive, and excluded women from serving on juries 
because they, again, uh, were, they were, they were not rational enough and, and their place was in the home. Uh, and so they ought not be required to serve on juries and, and had never recognized uh, discrimination on the basis of sex as a, a problem under the Equal Protection Clause. She really single-handedly, as a lawyer, changed that law. Now, she didn't do it alone. There was a movement. Uh, she did it you know, at the height of feminism. Uh, uh, in the United States, and of course, that buoyed her uh, uh, her arguments, just as Thurgood Marshall's arguments were supported by the civil rights movement uh, in which he acted. But um, they were they were both real uh, heroes, and and um, you know, no no one else on the, who's ever served on the Supreme Court has uh, done as much to advance um, civil rights uh, in this country. Of course, she had that memorable line as an advocate uh, uh, of standing up before the Supreme Court and saying she was asking no more than they take then their feet off the necks of women. <laughs> right. And, you know, that, that, but that line, which she took from a, you know, a suffragette, was, uh, it was remarkable that she said that. It was in her first, it was at the close of her first ever argument in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and, the, and the quote talks about the brethren taking their feet off our necks. And of course, the brethren is how we refer to the justices of the court. So it was kind of a, uh, a cheeky move, but she, it actually doesn't really reflect her, 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 her principal modus operandi, was, which was not to be confrontational, uh, but rather to make reasoned, careful, um, incremental arguments uh, that sought to reach the other side. Uh, and, 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 and she did that, you know, most notably in the equal protection context. She did it by bringing cases on behalf of men who were denied certain benefits and certain um, uh, uh, advantages because of their sex. And, and, and she did that, you know, because she wanted to appeal to the men who were the justices on the court who she had to convince that sex discrimination was a problem. And so, you know, um, rules that said things like, you know, if, you, if, a, widow, uh, if a, a widow automatically gets uh, survivor benefits, but a widower has to show that he was dependent on his, uh, on his deceased spouse in order to get those benefits, she would challenge those rules. They tangibly, they hurt men, but they were predicated on stereotypes that hurt women. Uh, and it was really through those kinds of cases, reaching out to men to show that, that sex lines hurt both men and women, uh, that she uh, really changed American law. David, we know that uh, within hours of Justice Ginsburg's death, uh, the political wheel started turning, probably within seconds uh, of news, started turning in terms of the appointment of a replacement justice. Uh, and as as in the states, there has obviously been lots of discussion here about the speed, the replacement, the fact that uh, 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 the difference between the Republican stance now and that they were adopting when opposing President Obama's appointment of or attempt to appoint Merrick Garland. Rather than asking about the rights and wrongs of that, I mean, just stepping back, I mean, how, how surprised should we be? Uh, 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 that nominations are now such a political football in the United States? Well, we shouldn't be surprised, but we should be saddened. Um, you know, it has been uh, a, a, a sort of the number one priority of uh, much of the Republican Party to, um, to steamroll uh, appointments to the court. Uh, and, and, and at the same time that the Senate is refusing to take up um, 
critically important COVID relief legis legislation that would you know, help the millions of people who are unemployed because of COVID, uh, they are rushing through a nomination of a Supreme Court justice in circumstances that you know, four years ago, under essentially the same circumstances, the Republicans to a person said, we can't uh, rush through a nominee in the last uh, year of a president's term. We should let the people decide and wait to see who wins the election. This time around, they are they are, uh, they are rushing uh, to uh, put um, uh, their pick on the court uh, before the election, uh, because I think they know that they're very likely to lose the election and they want this seat. And as you've alluded to, I mean, this fits into a pattern of the last four years and Mitch McConnell's led project to um, essentially try and change the face of the federal judiciary. I mean, how successful has he been in terms of number of appointments being approved by the Senate? Well, remarkably successful. I think it's, it's, at this point, over 300 new federal judges appointed by uh, President Trump, uh, all confirmed. Uh, it's more than any other president in a four-year period. He now has 30% um, uh, of the federal Court of Appeals judges are uh, Trump appointees, and 30. And you know, as of uh, you know, very soon when the Senate votes to confirm Amy Coney Barrett, he'll have 33 percent of the Supreme Court. That is remarkable for a, a single-term president. And now these judges are they're appointed, obviously, or at least appoint, appointed by a Republican administration, confirmed by a Republican majority in the Senate. But are all these judges conservatives or do we still find is there still room in the american system for the appointment by one party of judges who are moderate or change their views i mean one thinks of justice stevens and justice Souter of the supreme court appointed by republicans who were very liberal judges are they are those days over you know i think the republicans have done everything they can to make sure that those days are over i you know i i think there are some i wouldn't write off all the judges who've been appointed by uh president trump um uh but um but surely certainly their 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 goal was to find people who were very very reliable and uh established in in their very very conservative views and to put only those people on the appellate courts and, and, the, and the Supreme Court. You know, only time will tell, you know, to what extent they have succeeded. But, um, you know, I think a betting person would say that they've succeeded in, in large measure. So to um, Judge uh, Coney Barrett, who, as we're recording this, her nomination is maybe an hour or so, um, a confirmation is maybe an hour or so away. The Supreme Court already has a conservative majority after the death of Justice Ginsburg of 5-3, but the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, seems to be playing a kind of a moderating uh, role. Um, how do you see this new appointment impacting uh, on the court and the decisions it's likely, well, not just the decisions it's likely to make, but the cases it's likely to choose to take? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's quite remarkable. I mean, as I said before, you know, really the only precedent to um, Ruth Ginsburg was Thurgood Marshall. And uh, Thurgood Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas. And now Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. In both instances, civil rights heroes, icons, being replaced, kind of an identity politics aligns 
with very, very conservative people who happen to look like them in terms of sex and race, but, um, but are, it couldn't be more different. And so you're going to have a six to three solid conservative court for uh, you know, the foreseeable future. That means on any liberal, sort of traditional liberal conservative divide issue, uh, the liberals will have to get two conservatives to part company with their uh, compatriots and, and, and vote with the liberals in order to have a, have a shot of winning. You know, and that's a big ask. That is a big ask, particularly given how um, solidly and reliably conservative um, the justices are. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts has, has proven to be a, a moderating force to some degree, but he is, he is very, very conservative. He came up in the Reagan uh, revolution. He's you know, deadly, de deathly opposed to affirmative action, um, any uh, racial uh, uh, preferences whatsoever. Uh, you know, not, for him to be the moderating force just shows you how far to the right the rest of us. Can I ask you then, taking that, what this means for the future of the Supreme Court and, and more generally for the kind of rule of law? I mean, we, we share some legal traditions, but we absolutely don't share one in which there are kind of this explicit political element to judges' um, appointment. So seen from afar, David, with, there'd be there are two things that would concern an outsider. I mean, one is just the, the, the way that the whole appointment process has become so politically charged and what that means for people's respect for the court. And then also where what are the implications where you have um, a court with such extraordinary power as the US Supreme Court has in respect of its role as the arbiter of the Constitution, who on court issues, social issues, are probably far more conservative than the majority of the population whose decisions it, whose decisions it dictates. Is, uh, am I kind of overly pessimistic to be deeply worried about what that means for the institution of the US Supreme Court and, and more generally for the rule of law? I, you know, I think we all uh, should be worried about that. Um, I, I think the, you know, the... Um, we don't, we don't know yet what, in fact, the court will do. Uh, you know, historically, um, political scientists have looked at the Supreme Court, which has generally been more conservative than the country, you know, for most, all, virtually all of its history, it's been more conservative than the country. One exception, the Warren Court in the 50s and 60s was probably more liberal than the country, but generally it's, it's been more conservative than the country. And nonetheless, Political scientists have found that the court has generally not parted very radically with where the people are with respect to fundamental constitutional um, issues and, and, and values, with, again, with a handful of exceptions. And, um, and when those exceptions arise, uh, there is tremendous uh, pressure put on the court, uh, and the court often then adjusts in one way or another. So... Um, so I think it's quite possible that you're going to see significant pressure, and, you, and you're already seeing that pressure, you know, and people talking about reforming the court, adding justices to the court, changing the terms of the justices, uh, reducing the power of the court. All of these reforms, you know, none of which I think are likely to pass, but just the fact that they're talking about them puts pressure on the court. And I think you're, you, you, you are likely to see not just Justice Roberts, but Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, possibly even Justice Barrett, uh, in in so, you know some high profile cases, moving 
moderating their views so that it is not a court that on every controversial issue comes down on partisan lines because they understand that that is not, at the end of the day, a good for the institutional legitimacy uh, of the court. But if they don't do that, if they just stick to their political guns and and, and, and vote in a partisan way, then I think the moves for uh, court reform will gain uh, a lot of uh, a lot of power, and and we might see some reform. So you know, but that's going to take time to to, to see how that uh, works out. Helen. David, I'm really interested in in what you were saying about the idea of justices whose political uh, affinities you may know from the way they've been appointed and things they've said in the past, but who nonetheless may moderate their views. Um, to what they perceive to be the um, political, well, the, the, the political locus of the people, I suppose. And I'm just interested in how that comes about, because in our Supreme Court, the the kind of small p political uh, rift is to the, is about the degree, um, or the extent to which different judges regard themselves as institutionally competent to depart from what they see as the will of the legislature. You know, it's a real parliament against the judges argument. It's, it's argued as, well, it's quite often an executive against the judges argument, actually. But um, I'm just interested in how, how judges, you think, modulate their views to, to get to where they think civil society is, how they articulate that. Well, I mean, I think, so, so it, it, is, it is accepted you know, in, in, in U.S. jurisprudence, that the court has the power to declare acts of Congress and acts of the executive unconstitutional. That's been established since Marbury versus Madison very early in our history. And uh, and so that they can do. There's not dispute about that. But the the terms of the Constitution are, are quite open-ended, quite broad. What does it mean to abridge the freedom of, uh, of speech? What does it mean to deny due process? Um, you know, the, these are what does it mean to, um, uh, to to contravene equal protection of the laws? These these are not you know they don't answer themselves these questions, and so um, justices have to take them on and, uh, and and apply the the precedents as best they can. But I think in doing that, they you know at the back of their mind, in some way, and not in any literal sense, I don't think, but in back of their mind, they are conscious of where the country is. And so, you know, we won, I, I argued earlier um, this, ter- this, this in the past term, a case on whether uh, our employment discrimination law, which prohibited sex discrimination, was extended to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and, uh, and transgender status. And, you know, the, the, the American populace overwhelmingly thinks that it is wrong to fire someone for being gay or transgender, um, overwhelmingly. And lo and behold, the court interpreted the statute to reach that result, even though there's no dispute that in 1964, when Congress passed that law, they were not intending to um, uh, you know, protect uh, uh, LGBT folks. They were um, barely intending to protect women at that time. So, um, you know, and, and on abortion. You know, they, they took up a case last term uh, on abortion restrictions, and they struck down those restrictions. And again, um, most most people, the polls show people want Roe versus Wade to be uh, upheld. That, I think, will put some significant constraint on the court's ability to reverse Roe versus Wade, protecting the right to abortion, 
even though if the court was deciding at ab initio back in 1973 and it had these justices, they would, you know, each of, on their own accord, uh, not be inclined to find a, a right. David, you mentioned um, there being various court reform proposals. Uh, the latest one, of course, is Joe Biden's own suggestion in his recent 60 Minutes interview um, of a, a commission on constitutional reform. Uh, sorry, not on constitutional reform, on um, reform of courts, um, which he said uh, he'll set up to take a cross-party look at, um, at um, appointments and broader issues to do with federal judiciary uh, to report within about 180 days. Just interested in your thoughts about whether that's a, a good idea. Is that different from a Roosevelt-type, more controversial packing? Well, well, I mean, that's, that's sort of kicking the can down the road, right? It's recognizing that there's a, there, there's a problem or uh, that there's a perceived problem um, uh, and, and, and asking folks to think about it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what FDR proposed was basically adding justices to the court because he didn't like how the votes were coming out. Uh, and the remarkable thing, about, and that's, that's much more radical, and, and I think, you know, would politicize the court. The remarkable thing about the FDR proposal is that FDR was probably, um, you know, the, probably the most popular president the United States has ever had since George Washington. <laughs> um, and uh, the court at that time was without a doubt the least popular that the Supreme Court has ever been in the history of this country because it was striking down all these laws that were being passed to protect workers and consumers in the height of the depression. People were desperate, they needed support. Congress and the state legislatures were responding and the Supreme Court was coming in and saying, that's unconstitutional, that's unconstitutional. You're interfering with the rights of, you know, uh, the, of big business. Um, and even that, even when you had a depression, you had a incredibly popular court, I mean, incredibly popular president, incredibly unpopular Supreme Court, court packing failed. He couldn't get it passed. Um, so, you know, I don't think, and I think that's for a good reason. I think there's a real concern if you, you know, if one side just sort of adds justices to the court to try to get to their result, because then the next time around that the other side has a majority, they'll add justices to the court. And it, and it becomes a court that is really no different from a legislature, except that people serve for life, which is crazy. Uh, it's almost like the law lord. Um, uh, so... Um, you know. Well, I suppose it could be said that FDR actually won in the end because um, the threat produced a slightly more compliant Supreme Court. You could, it could be said, although historians actually uh, argue about whether that shift was in fact in response to the court packing proposal or had started before the court packing proposal. I mean, I think what, what really created the shift was not the court packing proposal itself, but just the incredible criticism um, that the Supreme Court was facing, uh, and that was one part of it. I don't know that it, you know, it wouldn't have shifted were that not part of it. Um, and so, you know, I do think, again, if the court moves in that direction, you know, out of step in a dramatic way with the American people, it will feel pressure. Um, but I suspect that will, you know, there'll be some course correction. If there's not a course correction, then there may well be um, court reform. And, you know, it is true that our, our, our system is broken. Uh, I mean, it is, it is not the way you would set up a system, you know, uh, from the start, right, knowing what you know. Now, I, I think there's, a, there's a, one of the proposals on the table, which I think makes some, makes some sense, is 
18 year terms uh, with staggered uh, so that a new uh, position opens up every two years so that every president knows that he or she will have two appointments. And that the idea is that that way the court will be more in keeping with the, the people. Uh, it will it will also reduce the incredible stakes that are now uh, raised whenever an appointment becomes a, a available because it's like you never know when you're going to get an appointment. It's like lightning striking. And so once it when it comes, you know, everything is trained on that. If you know you're going to get to every presidency, then it becomes uh, a less uh, politicized process. I think that'd be good. Can I just move then to a more immediate issue that might be on the docket in the coming weeks on the Supreme Court? And that's the election disputes, if election disputes arise. Obviously, one theme of the US election has been the president calling into doubt the legitimacy of voting by ballot and generally raising fraud. Um, This could come to the Supreme Court. I was living in America in 2000 with Bush and Gore, so I can see, I, I know what the Supreme Court can do. We had a little insight last week with a decision in respect of voting in Pennsylvania where the Supreme Court was split and so therefore upheld a Pennsylvania law that was seemed to most people just to be giving access to people to the right to vote. How worried should we be that things might change because of today's nomination, confirmation? Yeah, I think we should be worried. Um, you know, they are going to get... Um, you know, they're going to continue to get election disputes. There are something like 300 cases now pending across the country, challenging various aspects of the way this election is being run in light of COVID. And so, you know, they've already gotten many of those. Uh, They're likely to get some more. Uh, Who knows what happens on election day? Who knows what happens after election day? Um, And it is, you know, it's possible that it goes to the court and, 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 uh, you know, you're going to have a court that has, again, six Republicans and three Democrats. And you'll remember from Bush versus Gore, uh, the, all the Republicans voted one way and all the Democrats voted the other way. And lo and behold, the Republican presidential candidate won that election. So um, it's, it is uh, absolutely of deep concern. A lot of things have to happen for the Supreme Court to actually have the power to determine the outcome of the election. It has to be an incredibly close election. Uh, it has to turn on the, you know, the outcome in a, in a, in one or two or maybe three, at most three states. Um, and you know, and we may not have that. It, 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 it's possible that we have, uh, you know, as as near to a landslide as you can. Uh, and I shouldn't even say this, but it is possible that we may have uh, as near to a landslide as you can get in American politics these days. Uh, in which case, there won't the Supreme Court won't won't have to play a, a significant role. It only it, it's only determinative if it's really David. If Helen. if there is a election challenge, supposing it were close enough, I mean, how far do people perceive that this is just decided down liberal conservative lines? There must be some law involved in this at some point. <laughs> There is law involved at some point, but again, you know, they, uh, going back to the earlier conversation, the, you know, when the terms are very open-ended, there's a lot of room. And so, you know, in Bush versus Gore, the court interpreted the Equal Protection Clause to prohibit Florida from doing a recount that was per- perfectly permissible and, in fact, required under Florida law. 
And it said, this is a one-time only interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause and shall not be precedent, uh, literally, in any further case. I mean, what that, that is remarkable. So, it, you know, if the court can do that, uh, you know, there's no telling uh, what it can do. But I will say this. I think the very fact that Trump has said as much, the very fact that he, you know, made it very clear he wanted to get Amy Coney Barrett up there because the court might be deciding on elections, that will put pressure on the court not to vote along party lines. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think the court, they, they, they know that their institution is as much on the line as the, uh, as the presidency. Uh, and I'll say this also, in, at, when Bush versus Gore was being decided, the court was deciding not just which president would be, which candidate would be president, but they were, because of how close the court was, in terms of his division and how old some of the justices were at that time, the next president was going to be able to name some justices to the court. And so when they were voting, they were not just voting on who the next president would be, they were voting on whether they would spend the rest of their lives as a dissenting justice in the minority or as a majority justice making constitutional law. That is an incredible amount of pressure, very hard to sort of separate out. That's not going to be the case here. Because it's six to three, there is a solid conservative majority. Their own ability to sort of frame law as they go forward is not going to be dependent on Trump winning this next election. David, I'm going to um, end, if I may, not by asking you for a prediction um, of the election result, tempted as I am, but um, to assume that uh, that Biden wins and to assume that the Democrats take control of the Senate and thus the Judiciary Committee. What should be, from a rule of law perspective, what should be, what should be their most, what should be their biggest priority from a rule of law perspective when taking the reins of power? Wow. I mean, there's so much that needs to be fixed, so much that needs to be undone, so many norms that need to be um, sort of uh, resuscitated after the damage that President Trump has done over the past four years. Um, you know, so I don't, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think the priority areas in this country right now are racial justice. Um, look at, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the protests in the streets. Um, economic justice, um, look at the, the pandemic but and its effects, but also look at the incredible divide between the wealthy and the poor uh, in this country, uh, and immigrants' rights. Um, President uh, Trump has, uh, has, has used xenophobia from day one and has done tremendous damage. And I think those are the areas where we need to be um, really sort of coming back to some uh, commitment to basic human dignity, basic fairness, um, uh, and and uh, and some sense of equality in this country. Well, David, thanks for ending by reminding us that the, the rule of law is not about the personality of particular judges or the politicians who uh, appoint them. Thank, thanks so much for joining us, David. And uh, always a pleasure. Fingers a pleasure. crossed for November the third. <laughs> <laughs> Murray, Helen, always a delight speaking to David, but it does kind of 
always make me feel glad to be part of the English and Welsh legal system where we don't have political appointed judges and it's not subject to the kind of uh, hyper-partisanship they've got in the States. Um, there was a move just before and after the last election from some elements of the right-wing press here and also no doubt fed by um, other elements from the Conservative Party to suggest there may be some benefits in taking elements of the US system. Has that, has that, has that died down now or is that still something that we need to be concerned about? Murray, you've always got your ear close to the ground in politics. There has been some interest in some quarters in introducing some elements of the US system, I think, in terms of involving um, the legislature in the appointments process. Uh, But I think there's probably a very strong cultural resistance to going down the road towards Senate confirmation hearings. Um, Having said that, there there are ways of involving the legislature uh, in less extreme ways than that. Um, There is now um, a, a former, very senior clerk from the House of Commons who uh, is involved in judicial appointments through the Judicial Appointments Commission, which brings a certain parliamentary perspective, much less spectacular, of course. But there are ways of um, of involving Parliament um, in the appointments process in a way which means that there is more of a parliamentary perspective. But I don't think we'll go down um, we'll go down that route in this country at all. I also think the um, in the way that the uh, A level uh, off call A level fiasco kind of gave you an easy story to explain the problematic um, use of algorithms and how, if you don't think it through, you can have problems for equality. The Amy Coney Barrett story is a political story that moderately interested political people will see and say, do we really want um, a, 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 that overt a political element in our in our judicial appointments process? I, I agree with Murray. I think there's a quite strong cultural resistance to it just across the divide, actually. Just before we wrap up this week... Um, one issue uh, that's been very much live in the last 10 days or so has been Pretty Patel's attacks on lawyers, um, the critique of lefty lawyers. Um, now, apart from several of us going out and getting T-shirts printed with that uh, slogan, which I rather like, um, how concerned um, should we be? There's um, a big letter to which um, some of us are signatories that went into The Guardian today criticising it. Is it a point that we should be concerned about or should we be concerned that perhaps we are falling into uh, the kind of debate that the government might welcome because it's the distraction from perhaps more profoundly important issues? What, what, what's, what's your view, Helen? I think it is important. Um, it, it matters when you know people who run respectable legal practices who are busy getting more security on their doors because of the risk of knife attacks. Um, it matters in practical terms. Uh, I think the institutional attack matters. And I think you're right, Richard, that we shouldn't um, fall into a hysterical reaction, not least because there is some truth in the fact that people are allowed to criticise individual lawyers' decisions and um, motives. And that's that's part of political debate. It's the wrapping everyone up. It's the implying that an activist, look, any, anyone who, who, who represents clients is an activist lawyer and there's something wrong with that, that is the problem. And I think we should be bringing it back to the attacks on um, the integrity of the civil service, the integrity of the judges, um, the, the BBC, the, the attacks on the institutions of our society and saying this is wrong. You know, we, we believe in we believe in the institutions that protect us. Um, but I think it's, you're right that it needs to be a measured response rather than, you know, how dare you? This is my job and it is a noble calling. Murray. 
Oh, I very much agree with that. There's um, obviously a danger of um, uh, responding to um, a fight which is being deliberately picked um, in, in a way which, which walks into to that bear trap. But, uh, but I agree with Helen that um, there are very strong reasons why there are serious reasons to be concerned with the substance of what's being said about lawyers actually doing their job. Um, so, so I think we, we need to, with caution, um, re respond to it. Um, it is a very polarizing discourse, um, and, and along with the others that Helen's mentioned, there are a lot of those uh, polarizing discourses being picked. We need to respond to them properly, but in a way which doesn't um, uh, encourage that polarization. Well, thanks very much both. I think we'll draw it to uh, a close there. We'll return to this theme and also to the US elections when we'll be discussing the implications of the results, which we hopefully will know by then, with Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, in early November. In the meantime, our thanks to Rachel Murray, our producer. I thank you too for listening. And that's uh, Lefty Lawyer out. <laughs>